Morning, faith family. I want to say hello to those in our live venue as well. If you have a Bible, would you turn to Genesis chapter 1? Genesis chapter 1 shouldn't take you very long to find that. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're so glad you're here. By the way, didn't our tech team do a fantastic job creating these videos? Isn't that awesome? Absolutely. Wow. Very, very talented. Well, this morning we're starting a new series uh, just for the next few weeks in the month of June. Uh, we're, we're calling it Rediscover, The Lost Art of Living. And, and what's really driving this series is the fact that there's a lot of things in our life that we tend to overlook. We, we've, we've lost the glory and the significance of things in life. In fact, I would warn us, it's tempting this morning because we've been the last several weeks in the book of Ruth, and we've been very blessed by that series. I've shared with you a lot of testimonies of people who have shared how their life has been changed or the healing process has started. They were in a place of despair or depression or darkness, and God's begun to restore their hope. And the tendency, faith family, is this, to think that that's the only kind of life transformation that we're after. The Bible says that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, meaning some of the life transformation that we want to see here is simply you thinking about your life in a different way, that you begin to see some things in life that the culture has been saying, that's not important, or that's insignificant, or that doesn't matter, or we should just get rid of that, but we return to, but what has God said? About that. How has God designed life to be lived? Let's rediscover that in a very practical way. So I'm going to tell you this morning will be a very practical message. I'll be a little more teaching. The preacher will come out occasionally. He'll make an appearance here or there. I just want to walk us through God's design for how life is to be lived when it comes to work and vocation, something that is so easy to dismiss and quite honestly touches every one of our lives. So this morning, would you please join me as we stand for the reading of God's Word? We kick off this series and we look at Genesis chapter 1. We'll look at several verses in Genesis, but I want to start here in Genesis 1 verse uh, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Please pray with me. Father, our prayer really is this morning that you would help us see life as you have ordered it, created it, and designed it. Because we are often influenced by our culture, we need to be influenced by your word. Help us rediscover the value of these things, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Imagine with me this morning a scenario where you could have literally anything you wanted. Anything you wanted, any time you wanted it, and it gets better, you wouldn't have to work to get it. 
Think about that. Anything you want, anytime you want it, and you don't have to work to get it. Your favorite food or drink, your favorite leisure activity, your entertainment of choice, whatever it is that you would want, you would have it served to you. You wouldn't even have to lift a finger. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Some of you are like, where do I sign up? Like, that sounds perfect. That sounds ideal. That sounds, I don't know, like heaven. The reality is, faith family, when we tend to think about the perfect scenario, we tend to think about a situation that is absent from work. So it's things like vacation or retirement or the weekend or school letting out for the summer or going up north. The, the mentality is, and man, we get this mentality all the time in the culture is this. If I could somehow be free from work, then life would be great. And it's no wonder that we think that way because listen to some of the messages we hear from the culture. karaoke breaks out, all right? I'm hearing some of y'all singing along. I about did the Tennessee two-step up here, all right? 
Now, now the reason, and we had ton more examples that we could have shared with you, but I wanted to share several because we're bombarded with those messages all the time, aren't we? And what were the messages that we just listened to? Things like, you work nine to five while you dream of a better life. And even when you're working, you're really just working for the weekend because, according to Alan Jackson, that's when you have a good time. If we could only work at nothing all day. That's right. (laughs) That may be the only amen I get all morning. So I'll take it. The point, faith family, is this. We are fed the lie that the ideal life, the perfect scenario, heaven, would be life free from work. That is the exact opposite of how the Bible starts. When we come to Genesis chapter 1, God has created humanity and he puts them in the garden. God is putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And in chapter 1, verse 31, God looks at all of it and says, it is, say it with me, very good. That's not a commentary on humanity. That's a commentary of the whole picture put together. So you would think if this is the ideal, if this is very good, if this is the perfect scenario, the way we think it would be absent from work. And isn't that how we typically think of Adam and Eve? This is the imagery, like they're just sitting around, eating fruit, peeling grapes, playing with animals. They come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. To have their daily devotion with God. Well, friends, that might make for a good Christian romance novel. That may sound spiritual and perfect. But it's absolutely wrong. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth earth. Here in Genesis one, God creates mankind, male and female in his image. So here's the first question we got to ask. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And there have been a lot of different answers throughout church history to try to answer that question. Some have said it means that humanity is rational at least most of them, all right? That God is God has a mind and therefore we are created in his image, therefore we're rational creatures. You, after all, don't see a lot of birds doing algebra. So we're in the image of God in that we can think and, and have rational thoughts. Some have said that the imago dei or the image of God is relational. God is one God in three persons. Let us make man in our image, meaning that we were created for relationships. 
Some have said that the Imago Dei is moral. That is, that unlike the rest of creation, human beings have an understanding of right and wrong. You don't find a lot of sexual purity conferences for dogs. You just think about that and you'll get it later. Okay? You, you don't look at the animal kingdom and really see a lot of, hmm... Like, is this right or wrong? No, humanity understands morality. At least they should. Now, those things are true, but listen to me. That is not how an ancient Near Eastern mindset would have understood image. Those things are true biblically, but it's not really what's going on here necessarily in Genesis 1. An ancient Near Eastern mindset would have seen image bearing as, listen, functional. Let me give you an example. Be holy as I am holy. What's going on there? Live in such a way as to display my holiness. How you live and how you act exist to reflect, to image God. It would be like somebody coming up to, to one of your children and saying, wow, when I notice how they act, it reminds me a lot of you. <laughs> That's good or bad, all right? But there's a resemblance, there's a image in them where I see you. It's why Jesus, the true image of God, says this, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So image is functional. It's the way you live and act reflects God. Question number two, what has God been doing in Genesis 1 leading up to verse 26? Twiddling his thumbs. Does Genesis 1 verse 1 say, and in the beginning God napped? No. In fact, all throughout the verses leading up to verse 26, God has been what? Creating, cultivating, forming, developing the world into existence. In other words, God has been at work. Follow the thought because you're with me. God has been at work and then he creates humanity in his image and tells them that they have dominion over the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue it. In other words, God who is at work creates humanity in his image to work. This will revolutionize the way you think about your life. Listen, built into the fabric of what it means to be a human being, created in the image of God is to work. Not sip lemonade, not play with animals, not stare into a bright light and sing how great thou art over and over and over again, but to exercise vocation in creation in a way that glorifies God. That's why you exist. Is the call on your life and we're going to define what work is in just a minute. But to do this thing in a way that reflects the goodness and the character and the glory of God. Alexander the Great, it is said, encountered one of his soldiers in, 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 in his army who was sloppy and completely disorderly and was just out of whack. And the 
And Alexander the Great asked him, what's your name, son? And, and, and the young man said, well, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great looked at him and said, quote, then either change your name or change your behavior. Now, what's he saying? He's saying, if you're going to carry my name, then how you act represents me. That's exactly what we need to see in terms of work. Listen, our motivation and our approach and our attitude towards work has everything to do with God. Now, this seems really theological, but I want you to see that this is actually very practical. Okay, here's what I mean. How you image God, faith family, no offense, Pastor Terry, has more to do with than just singing songs on Sunday morning. No offense to me, or listening to sermons week in and week out, though the Bible is clear on the priority of us being together. But what I want you to see is your imaging God is actually about clocking in, turning on your computer, getting your kids ready for school, teenagers, college students, master students, doing your homework. I didn't figure I'd get an amen on that one. I was waiting for an amen. I, I, I didn't figure that would happen. You start a tractor. How you spend your retirement. Cleaning up the house. I didn't expect an amen on that one either. My point is, I could keep going on and on. These things are what you've been called to do in a way of glorifying God. They are not mundane, they are not meaningless, they are not just ordinary. They may feel that way, but there's glory there, which is why we need to rediscover work and vocation. Martin Luther is probably the greatest among Protestants to really get this idea of work and its dignity in all its many forms. Listen to what Luther writes, quote, God could easily give you grain and fruit without your plowing and planting, but he does not want to do so. What else is all our work to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, at war, or government, but by which he wants to give his gifts? These are the mask of God, behind which he wants to remain concealed and do all things. We have a saying that God gives every good thing, but not just by waving of a hand. God gives all good gifts, but you must lend a hand. That is, labor and let him give the fruits. Govern and let him give the blessing. Fight and let him give the victory. Preach and let him win the hearts. Take a husband or wife and let him give the children. Eat and drink and let him nourish and strengthen you. Here's the conclusion. In all our doings, he is to work through us. And he alone shall get the glory from it. Work matters. Vocation matters. Last thing, we'll move on. Um, I have two daughters, and they already, you know, even at seven and five, are talking about a day when they're going to get married. And, and the Bible talks about that day. The Bible describes it as a day where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> Not for me. For the punk, I mean, for the, for the young man who will marry my daughter. I will put Old Testament, the judgment of God on him, all right? But I am as serious as I can be. Listen, that day's coming, and when that day comes, work ethic will matter just as much as church attendance. 
Because work matters to God. You're an image bearer created for vocation. Okay, so then you would ask, well, then how does that get expressed? Does that just mean a job? Not necessarily. How does this get expressed? Well, Genesis answers that. Look in chapter 2. The first example is this image bearing of God through work happens in the context of society. In other words, Genesis 1 says, have dominion over creation. Notice how Genesis chapter 2 explains this or expands this. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Right here. So here's the, here's the bridge. What does it mean, chapter 1, to have dominion over creation? Answer seen in chapter 2, which is this. Advance it, care for it, cultivate it. Follow me, follow me right here. Just as God does not create a finished product on day one, but develops it each day, Adam is given a garden that is not complete, but is to be developed each day. Do you see? Adam's vocation was to work and keep the garden. That is to care for it and advance it for good. Your calling in vocation is simply to look at where God has placed you. What is your garden? Your neighborhood? Your organization? Your sphere of influence? Your product? Your mind? Your body? Whatever. Whatever garden God has given you, the call of God on your life is to cultivate that for the good of others around you. Let me break this down into, again, some practical examples that we can see. I'm telling you, faith family, this, this will change Monday morning. What Adam looks like in present day life is this. A hospice nurse caring for a dying patient. A businessman starting a business and trying to grow it. An artist creating art. A musician writing songs. A retiree volunteering to serve others. A scientist advancing research. A police officer serving the community. A farmer working in the field. A pastor shepherding a flock. Don't you see... Your calling in life is to care for the garden that God has given you to His glory and their good. That changes everything. Right here. Because what that means is, doctor, the patient now is no longer just a means to a check. It's a garden. 
to serve and cultivate. Teacher, the classroom is no more than just a bunch of kids. It's a garden of which to cultivate and advance for good. Pastor, the congregation is not just a bunch of people gathered for a service. It's a garden of which to cultivate and advance. Boss, your employees are not just people that help you grow your business. They are gardens of which to cultivate and advance. That will change everything. God has given every single one of you a garden to cultivate and advance for His glory and their good. It's why Martin Luther King Jr. says this, if it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, well then sweep the streets like Michelangelo painted pictures, like Shakespeare wrote poetry, like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets so well that the host of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. You're imaging God As you take your abilities and gifts and use that in the context of gardens, that is, society. Here's the second way work gets expressed, and that is family. In Genesis 1, it says, be fruitful and multiply, and then Genesis 2 explains and expands. Hang with me, verse 18. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then he said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, think about it this way. This is huge. Just as God did not create everything on day one, but advanced it. Just as Adam is given a garden that is not complete, but he must work it and keep it. Guess what? Marriage, family, parenting is a vocation given to you by God to work and to keep. When you got married, was your relationship perfect on day one? (laughs) No way. What you've done is you've spent the last months, weeks, years, 10, 20, 30, 50 years, what? Working and growing and cultivating that. If the Lord gives you children or if the Lord has given you children, did that child show up on day one as a perfect finished product? (laughs) Anything but. You've spent weeks and months and years trying to cultivate and grow that. Any parents in the room that would be willing to admit that parenting is hard work. (laughs) Hands are going up everywhere. Revival's breaking out right here. Absolutely. Why? It's a vocation called by God. You have been given the vocation of family. It's why the Bible says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. 
Proverbs 31 in describing this respected woman. This woman has a skill and an ability, a plan to her work, who works hard. That's because male or female, husband or wife, mom or dad, changing diapers, packing lunches, providing financially, taking time to teach is not a mundane, meaningless task. It is a God-honoring service as image bearers of our Creator. And you've got to see that that way. It is work. It was intended to be work. But that's a good thing. I'm not trying to make a political statement here, but, but um, last cycle around when Mitt Romney was running for president, uh, there was a political spokesman that said about his wife, Anne, who had been a stay-at-home mom uh, with all five of their sons, said on public television, quote, she has never worked a day in her life. I know, right? <laughs> Don't kill the messenger. And you should respond that way. And there was an outlash in the community or in the, the culture, rightly so, because a culture that does not recognize the God-given vocation of family does not understand the created order of God. Now, here's, here's the framework we've built thus far. God has given us work, and that's a good thing. It's the way in which we image Him. We do that primarily through taking care of the gardens that he's given us, society, and the family. Now, God has given us that and designed it this way, hang with me, for your enjoyment. You heard that right. God has set it up this way for your satisfaction. Look at what happens in verse 15 of chapter 2. This is something, Faith Family, I had not seen for quite some time. And it was a light bulb moment for me. I hope it will be for you. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you'll not eat or you'll surely die. So right here, here's what I used to think for the longest time. I assumed that what God had done in Genesis was give Adam this, like, buffet of trees to eat from, except for the one. And that he could just, like that image, he could just walk around any time and just eat all he wanted to. But what I never understood was, which is always important when you're interpreting the Bible, is, I don't know, context? What does verse 16 of eat of any tree come right after? And he placed him in the garden to work it and keep it. And here's the light bulb moment that happened for me. The fruit that God is calling Adam to enjoy is the fruit of his labor. In other words, God has said, I've created you to have dominion over the earth. How? Through family and through cultivating this garden. And there will be benefit from that. There will be fruit from that. There will be productivity from that. And I want you to enjoy it. What a gracious God. It means enjoy work and enjoy the fruit that comes from work. Like doing good for others, like the ability to take a vacation, like food, like the development of your children. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and following. 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see, you think that God setting up work is to be for your punishment. God has actually set up work to be for your pleasure. To enjoy Him as you are imaging Him through work. So let me ask you, all eyes right here, do you love work? I didn't ask, do you love your job? That's a separate thing. I'm asking, do you love work? I didn't ask, do you get along with all your co-workers? Do you love work and the gifts of God that come to you through work? Now, what I've tried to say up to this point is this. Work is awesome, baby. It is God designed to glorify him through society and family for our pleasure. And your response is this. I don't know how he planned sermons. I'm sure he prays. I'm, I'm sure he studies the Bible. I, I'm sure he, he, he does his diligence in putting together sermons, but I'm convinced this week his sermon preparation included illegal substances. Because <laughs> this guy's crazy. That you bring strange things to our ears. I mean, literally, who in the culture is talking this way? And our response would be like, okay, maybe this is how you're saying God has designed work, but this is not my experience whatsoever. I work with num-nums. And to you, I say, I can relate. I, I won't name names, but you can figure it out. You said, but I work with difficult customers. I can relate. <laughs> But I won't name names or read emails. I, I fight budgets and layoffs and housework that never ends and unemployment. You're bringing strange things to our ears because if this is how life is supposed to be, then why is my greatest frustration in life typically related to either work or family? It just doesn't make sense. The answer to that is actually very, very simple. It's only one word. It only has three letters. It's called sin. The issue is not work. The issue is not family. The issue right here, faith family, is what sin has done to work and family. Because what happens in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve, instead of listening to God, listen to the temptation of a serpent. The temptation of that serpent is in essence not work and eat, which is what God established in chapter 2, 15 and 16. It is what? Take and eat. It is uprooting the design of God. Instead of... Doing things God's way, do things your way. Instead of living to image God, live to image your own passion and desires. And they eat. And look at what is said of the consequences to work in chapter 3, verse 16. 
To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So what do you have right there? You have family, which we've just talked about, frustrated. Verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground. There's the garden. Because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for, for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. In other words, sin devastated God's design for work. And it's never been the same. In fact, I'm going to land the plane this morning by giving you three ways that sin has impacted our view of work. It's why we don't think biblically, we tend to think culturally when it comes to work. Here's what sin has done. Number one is it's made work an annoyance. Work is hard. That's why they call it hard work. And I went to seminary for that, right? That's <laughs> profound. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Sin has made work frustrating. It's why your plans don't work out. It's why raising children is difficult. Sin has frustrated the work that God has called us to do. Because, number two, work is an annoyance, it's why work is also often an avoidance. What I mean here is because work is hard, we tend to not want to do it. We avoid work. If I had 45 minutes, I'd preach a sermon out of Proverbs on laziness. The sluggard. The problem is in our culture, we laugh at laziness. Laziness is a punchline to a joke. But I want every eye right here and every ear listening. Laziness isn't cute. It's satanic. That's strong. Say, so why do you say it's satanic? Because, listen, it is rebellion toward the created order of God. When Jesus tells the parable of the landowner who went away and left people with talents and comes back and one had buried that and was lazy with it, what was the response of the master? Oh, well, maybe you'll do better a second time. No, it was what? You wicked and slothful servant. That isn't cute. Now, what some of us would say is, preach, preacher, because I'm not lazy. I'm not lazy at all. In fact, nobody's ever come up to me and said, pray for me, pastor. I'm struggling with laziness. You'd say, I'm busy. I'm up early. I stay up late. My schedule is full. I attack my daily, my daily to-do list with a passion. But listen, there is a difference between busyness and fruitfulness. In fact, your busyness may be a disguise for your laziness. Listen to how Pastor C.J. Mahaney writes. What he writes, he says this, quote, This will be very helpful and convicting. When considering our schedules, we have an endless option. 
But there are a few clear priorities and projects derived from our God assigned roles that we should occupy, that should occupy the majority of our time given the week. And there are a thousand tasks of secondary importance that tempt us to devote a disproportionate amount of time to completing an endless to-do list. Listen, and if we are lazy, we will neglect the important for the urgent. In other words, follow the analogy and don't take it too far. You could spend all night long working in the garage, busy, while neglecting your family. And that's laziness. Even though you're active, what you've put off is the priority of what God has called you to do. And in that sense, your busyness, and I'm all for work in the garage, like ladies don't use that too far, okay? I'm all for that. But the problem is we can use busyness as a false mirage that we're actually working hard when in actuality we've put off the hard work for something secondary. Number three, not only is work an annoyance, is work an avoidance, but number three is work and acceptance. Boy, I wish I had time here. Here's what I mean. Instead of seeing work as a way of imaging God, it becomes God. Instead of seeing work as the way you worship God, you start worshiping work. And you might say, but I would never do that. I I certainly don't see my work as a God. (laughs) Then why do you see your accomplishments as the thing that makes you accepted? Why is it that you see what you do or your work as a way of feeling valuable? Listen to my language. Why is it that many of us look to work as a means of justifying ourselves? If I grow the company, if I please my boss, if I make my family happy, if everybody likes the sermon, if I make the best grades, if my children turn out fine, if I make a contribution to the industry, I matter. What are you doing? You're looking for justification through work. And I will tell you, I don't have a lot of time here, but I'll just tell you full transparency. You want to know a little bit about your pastor's heart? Um, this is where I struggle the most. I run into you at Walmart at 3 in the afternoon. I will be tempted to tell you how late I was up the night before working on church stuff just to justify why you're seeing me at 3 in the afternoon at Walmart. And all you wanted to do was say, hello. (laughs) But why? There's something in me that says, but i got to justify myself. We live in a resume-building society. You matter because look at what you've accomplished. And the problem is, is that this subtly shifts over into how we think about Christianity. Namely, we know we're saved by grace, but we think we stay on God's good side by our works. That we're somehow acceptable before God because of what we do. 
This is our functional theology. Listen to me, workaholics. Listen to me, workaholics. Workaholism is nothing more than the leakage of bad theology. That your acceptance comes from your work. And here's the final point. Then how do we get back to God's design? What is the answer that solves the sin problem when it comes to work? And this is going to shock you, so I'm glad you're sitting down. The gospel! Shocker, right? Listen to John 17, verse 4. We end with this. John 17, verse 4 says this. I have glorified you on earth, Jesus said. In other words, I have imaged you. I have glorified you. How? Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. In other words, Jesus, where have we heard this language before? Imaged God by his work and finished his work. Now that's the gospel. What does that mean for us? This is so exciting. Now we just have to live in it. You cannot look to Jesus glorifying God through the cross and be lazy. You just can't. Put this in your mind. Are you really going to look at Jesus who for the joy set before him endure the cross and say, eh, I don't really want to go to work today. It's hard. I don't really want to raise children. It's hard. What? No, you can't look at Jesus accomplishing the work and finishing the work for the Father and say, I'm going to be lazy because laziness is anti-gospel. But on the other hand, you cannot look at Jesus finishing the work on the cross and need work to justify you. Why? This is so good. This is so good. How are you going to get a better resume than the very righteousness of Jesus? Oh, 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 so you're the greatest musician that ever lived? Whoopity-doo! That doesn't come close to the righteousness of Jesus. You pastor the largest church in America? Who cares? That doesn't come even close to the righteousness of Jesus. You don't have to build your resume for acceptance with Jesus because Jesus is your acceptance. He finished the work. And therefore, am I getting excited? It feels like I'm getting excited. (laughs) It's why I'm telling you this. The gospel of what Jesus did on the cross, when we understand it and when we apply it, does this. And I'm done. It transforms us into this. Diligent workers who rest in the finished work of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just the time in your word. Um, It is my sincere prayer that This morning, we'll begin to see our life in a different way. That we would not be conformed to the thinking of the world when it comes to work and vocation, but that we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we would look at how you have ordered life. That we would rediscover the art of living. 
and that we would live in the good news of the gospel that allows us to not find our identity in work and yet motivate us to work. Whatever our gardens may be, whatever those talents and skills and abilities you've given, Father, may we leave today with a commitment by your grace to glorify you through them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.